0: Your neighbor Jim figured out that with MetroPCS, he gets unlimited data, talk, and text for $30, period. Babe, that color looks awesome. Just like he figured out that shopping with his wife will buy him a night with his buddies. That's guy's night out, figure it out. You too figure it out. Switch to MetroPCS on the fast 4G LTE T-Mobile network for only $30, period. MetroPCS, wireless, figure it out. Coverage not available in some areas. plan includes the first one gigabyte of data at up to 4G LTE speeds. See store or MetroPCS.com for details and terms and conditions and data management info. Block Talk Radio. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Genuso, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. The show where legends, current players, and industry leaders all come to discuss the great game of golf. This morning, Chris has Next on the Tee PGA Tour Pro, and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association, Jim Estes. And also, next on the tee, CEO of the World Golf Foundation, Steve Mona, will be joining us. So, as always, we thank you for spending your morning with us, and enjoy Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Chris, take it away.
1: Hey, thank you, Joe. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining me again this morning next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today we've got two wonderful guests lined up to knock the dew off the tee with me. First up is going to be a PGA professional Jim Estes. Jim has been a PGA pro for 20 years. He won the 1996 Nike Inland Empire Open, played in four U.S. Opens. He's also the co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association, and he was voted the 2011 Uh, golf digest best teacher in the state of maryland so i look forward to talking to jim uh, here just in a few minutes a little later i'll be joined again by steve mona steve is the ceo of the world golf foundation and administrator for we are golf he joined us over on the football side on thursday night tailgate last month he and his team from uh, we are golf and uh, with along with people like jack nicholas recently met with members of congress on national golf day Back on May 21st. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing how all that went. So he'll be here about 20 minutes from now. But before we get started, uh, we want to kick off the show like we do every week here by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military and everyone listening on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We also want to thank those of you who serve in every branch of public service. We appreciate the sacrifices you make to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. Our sincere thanks as well. Deshawn, Cruz, Stephen Lee, and all the folks at Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org and clicking on the sports link that you're going to find in the bottom right-hand side of the page or on the radio link that you're going to find in the upper right-hand corner. Also, please, be sure to follow those guys on Twitter. That's important to them as well. You can find them at the AFRN for the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me, is Jim Estes. Let me give you a little background on Jim. He was born in Washington, D.C., graduated with a B.A. in economics from the University of Maryland, played his college golf starting out at the University of Tennessee and then finishing up at the University of Maryland. He won the 1985 Maryland Amateur Championship, turned pro in 1988, played on the nationwide tour for several years, winning the 1996 Nike Inland Empire Open. He won the 2007 Golf Magazine Innovator Award, 2008, the Middle Atlantic Section President's Award given out for outstanding contributions to the local community. That year, he was also the PGA Middle Atlantic Section Player of the Year. 2010, he went on to win the PGA Patriot Award winner, so I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. And in 2011, the Golf Digest Best Teacher in his home state of Maryland, and he is the co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association, and I'm very excited to have him as part of Next on the Tee. Jim, how are you doing this morning?
2: Great, great. Thanks for that intro. That was quite a, I hadn't even known, I forgot about all that stuff.
1: stuff. I appreciate that. Uh, Forgot all the great things you've done? Good for uh, you. I don't
2: know about all that, but yeah, that that was quite, um, that makes me feel good to know that I've done some things for the troops and tried to provide some service in the way of uh, bringing golf to those men and women that are so bravely serving our our armed forces.
1: Absolutely. You've done some wonderful things, and we're going to get into all of that. Um, Jim, I kind of want to start really, though, at the beginning. I read that your father, who was an accomplished amateur player in his own right, introduced you to the game when you were eight. What got right. you started uh, being interested in getting out on the course?
2: Well, um, my dad was um, a pretty good athlete. He played high school basketball. all met at, uh, in D.C. at, at uh, Blair. And actually, Morgan Wooten was on the same team with him, and Morgan actually backed up my dad. Um, so my dad always said that's the reason Morgan was such a good coach at DeMatha, because he got to watch a lot. But, um, so my dad got into golf, uh, after he, um, got in, he was a surgeon, so he, he was good with his hands, uh, and, uh, being a good athlete, I think, uh, he took up golf at 34 and became, um, a club champ. He got to the finals of the club championship and lost, but, um, introduced to me when I was eight, and, um, you know, I had, uh. Just an immediate love for the game. I, um, I, I would spend all the time out there, I could, learning how to, to play. But more importantly, I mean, I just love to practice. I like to get in the sand trap and play around all day and, and chip and putt and play little games and stuff like that. So uh, I think uh, just, just the desire to, to practice and learn um, how? different shots and stuff was the reason I got better. Pretty quickly. Yeah,
1: that's a little different because, you know, mostly it's, a, it's the practice that people dread, but the actual playing, you know, actually playing the round that people enjoy. But that's great. I and then, know. I'm sure, sure that's a big reason why you were successful out there. Yeah. So you started your college career at Tennessee on a golf scholarship. You know, first of all, how was the University of Tennessee able to wrestle you away from, you know, whether it was the University of Maryland or anyone on the East Coast?
2: Yeah, I... Um it was a funny story. Howard Baker, uh, I think, was the Senate ma- Majority Leader at the time. uh um, right. Wrote me a letter and um, asked me to come out to dinner with him. And he'd heard I was a pretty good golfer. I was playing um, in the Maryland, D.C. area. And at the time, um, Tennessee was actually very good in golf. At, at one point, Jim Gallagher Jr. was on the Ryder Cup team in '91. Uh, he was on the team and um i went on a recruiting trip and i saw that they were going to have four seniors and then they were looking for one more guy to come in and really fill fill that fifth spot and um so i did i decided to and i enjoyed my time at tennessee and we we finished we got to the ncaa tournament uh, my freshman year and we ended up finishing in the top 15 um so we we had a good year that year and all those guys graduated and um we were looking, the coach was looking to um, build a range, but um, funding fell through and uh, I was picking up balls at the Cherokee Park there in Knoxville and I was like, this isn't right. I need to be going. I need to do something else. (laughs) So I looked at, going. I called Fred Funk at the time, was the coach over there at Maryland and uh, I I asked him if he had a spot, um, if if I could come and transfer and and he's like, sure, if you want to do that, no no worries. So So I went there and and, uh, we had a, My time there, I had the red shirt, so I lost a year, but I still, you know, we had a good year. It's funny, one of the guys on the team, Mark Long, ended up caddying out on the PGA Tour for about 20 years. He's actually involved with the software development of um, the Sky Caddy. And uh, he he was a decent golfer, but he was known for his academics. He got, you know, straight A's in school, and he's the only guy I know that uh, I think had an appointment to... uh, naval academy in west point and turned it down to go caddy as it turned wow. out he's done just fine uh, developing all these different things he's done so we had a unique team at maryland we weren't the best but we had fun
1: yeah so you mentioned you know fred funk was your coach or what was it like praying playing for fred
2: well it's funny because fred uh you know he thought the way to teach or help players was just to go out and practice and show show you how to do it you know and and uh, He spent a lot of time practicing, and he and I got into it because he would spend more time on his game than he would helping us. But he was like, "Well, you guys just need to adopt my practice habits and watch me, and you'll get better." And I was like, "I don't, I don't know about that. I think you need." (laughs) (laughs) So uh, as it turned out, I always kid him, but I think I said I probably spurred you on to to quit coaching and go out and play. And then obviously he, that was the right move. (laughs) <laughs> For him. <laughs> yeah.
1: Agreed. Yeah, so, so, you know, the uh, you know University of Maryland has had, you know, a few other outstanding alums who went on to, you know, play, yeah. uh, you know, have some great careers. I mean, George Burns is, a, is an alum, Dean Beeman, you know, yeah. to name just a few. Did you ever have an opportunity to sit down with either one of those guys, pick their sure. brains a little bit? It's
2: funny. My dad, uh, Dean – was pretty good friends with my dad Dean was a very good businessman uh late into his twenties and he had a, he got into the insurance business and um you know had a very decorated amateur career. My dad actually was taking up the game and used to play some with dean and so he um he would always pick dean's brain and um, you know he introduced me to uh to Dean when I was about nine or ten years old. I got to play some with him that was when he was just taking on the commissioner's job uh, I right. just started and um yeah, so that was neat, getting to know him through the years, uh, talking to him about things. He was a big inspiration to me because he was a little guy like myself and didn't hit the ball very far and, and uh, was known as a phenomenal fairway wood player and, and putter. So it just shows mm-hmm. you, you know, back then, you know, he, he looked at uh, Nicholas as his number one counterpart, but his mind was his number one asset, that and his ability to putt.
1: hmm so you actually started out competing professionally over in South America, right?
2: Yeah, I played in South Africa and South America, you know, and um, I wasn't a decorated player in college. I was majoring in economics, and I was studying so much. I, I, was, I, I didn't really play that well in college. I had a couple good tournaments, but, um, you know, I figured the study and the schoolwork I wanted to get through school, missing all that time in the spring it was tough for me. I probably should have majored in something different, but as it turned <laughs> out, I should have probably majored in something that was a little easier than economics. But, but um, you know, playing early on, I didn't have much success. I mean, I went over to South Africa and, and for three months and then had to Monday qualify for tournaments on that tour, and, and I only got in like four events, and I made a couple cuts. But it was just a good experience to play with guys like David Faraday was over there and John Bland and all these guys, Tony Johnstone, all yeah. these older fellows. Um, so, yeah, Eamon Darcy, never forget that swing. And um, Gordon Brand. There's, But, but you know, that was a real good experience for me. Um, got to meet a lot of guys and learn how to play the game and see how it's done.
1: Yeah. So you come back over here. you you win the 1996 Nike Inland Empire Open on the former Nike Tour which is now obviously the web.com tour. Right. You know, you know, overcut, you know, Stuart Sink was in that field. Did that win validate for you that you belonged on tour and you belonged competing up against, you know, some of the, you know, some of the top players? Well, it certainly
2: world? validated the fact that I should give it an uh, give it a try cuz I was playing yeah. I did it backwards. I mean, I went from playing in turning pro in 89 and 90 and trying to play on the Hogan tour. I got my Hogan tour card, made it to the finals, but didn't ever get my regular tour card. And then I ran out of money and uh, took a job, right? And then I won the assistance championship um, in 91 in in the middle Atlantic section and went on to take another few jobs. and, And then 96 rolls around, and I had still been going to Q school every year as an assistant pro, and getting to the finals but it was totally out of the blue to shoot 1600 and win that tournament um so the membership was like well why don't we just pay your salary give you enough money for you and your family to be comfortable for a year and you go out and play and and that's what i did and then i kept playing for 96 season 97 98 99 in 2000 so i played you know like whatever that is five years um and that was that was really fun. that was a good experience, but then at that point i was thirty two I'd made it to the tour. I didn't keep my tour card, and I had enough because I knew what I needed uh, I probably needed to be a little younger and have more time and not have a family to pursue that um but it was a great experience and i'm so I'm so happy that I did it
1: yeah, absolutely so I know our listeners on the Armed Forces Radio Network will be particularly interested in hearing about the Salute Military Golf Association. Talk about what inspired you to get that thing started.
2: Well, I mean, being a self-centered guy, being a guy that was all about me, 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 being a pro, being a professional athlete, you know, people coddle to you and, and cater to you, so I was pretty selfish. And um, when I when I got into the golf business, I had to become more other-centered and um, just happenstance, one, one of the Vietnam vets who I teach had been volunteering over at Walter Reed um, to take guys out to dinner on Friday nights to a restaurant that was owned by a Vietnam vet who gave them free meals. He was taking some lessons and he said, you know, maybe it would be a good idea for you to come to the restaurant and talk about golf and maybe talk to the owner at the facility and see if you can get the, the guys uh free range balls and then you can give them some lessons at no charge uh, and so that's exactly what i did and i offered that service and then i said you know well maybe we can fund this a little bit so we had the salute servicemen day and we offered free lessons i invited like 20 pros out there and we had all these different beat the pro um games and free le- free lessons and we had uh pre-demos of all the manufacturers, brought the newest equipment out, and it turned out we raised like $30,000, and when that funded uh, wow. the uh, lessons, so then I didn't have to just give my time away. Um, at that point, I was using disabled American veterans as the uh, organization to underwrite. In other words, all the money was going to that organization, and then that money was put in a bank account, a holding account, to be used for lessons and equipment. So, we went through all that money, and then the guy that, that was doing the books is like, why don't you just um, do this on your own, you know? Why don't you just become incorporated? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know what's involved there, so I'll talk to some friends of mine who are business folks. And so that's what we did, and um, we started out with just a little clinic of 15 people, and now we're in nine different locations throughout the country, and we average about 80 to 100 soldiers at these clinics. So... Um, and we That's raise great. about a half a million dollars a year, and it, you know, ninety-eight percent of that money goes towards towards the um, utilizing that money goes towards you know the golf equipment, custom fitted equipment for people with all kinds of disabilities. we've bought a paragolfer, which is a three three wheeled vehicle that has a hydraulic chair that allows people with, um, you know, maybe lower extremities missing or maybe they're paralyzed to to uh, play. And so it's it's been great. Um, it's been an eye-opening experience to, um, to have people that are passionate about learning and are disciplined, and they have all the character traits, these folks, these men and women in the uniform, have all the character traits it takes to be uh, a good golfer, just many of them have never been exposed to it. So, you know, trying to grow the game, this is one demographic that everybody could probably uh, – Could utilize the golf professionals could utilize this demographic if they want to grow the grow the number of people playing the game because there's so many good athletes in in the the military that just haven't been exposed to this and I I, you know I've I've worked with double and triple amputees and um, single arm amputees and and these guys are playing in the 80s and 90s and and playing great golf.
1: Yeah, so that's. That's the interesting, you know, part, Jamie. You talk about, you know, the military vets who have lost their limbs but not their desire to play the game of golf. Is it? Do you see? It, is it a mix between introducing, you know, people that have never played the game to this, and folks that have, you know, that you know, prior to, you know, their military service and, and uh, you know, being veterans, you know, love the game of golf, thought they were never going to be able to play the game again because right. they have lost. Some extremity, and now you're giving them the opportunity to come back. Are there other partners that are in there with you, like the Wounded Warrior Project and companies that are, you know, helping donate things like, you know, the well, extremities that these folks do?
2: you know, we've we've applied for a grant from Wounded Warrior Project, but they're really not into sports-related activities. They're more into education and trying to get jobs. But Booz Allen Hamilton was a sponsor on the PGA Tour for a number of years, um, and they have partnered with us, and they've got cities... At 20 different cities now across the nation, they're going to be doing golf events um, as a part of a team-building exercise and, and as a part of um, introducing vets into the defense contracting industry. And so that is going to be a huge help to us because obviously we're small and, and um, it's difficult to raise money in this climate. So there's a lot of yeah, you know, there's a lot of competition, just like in the in the for-profit industry. So. We've been fortunate. We have one tournament every year that um, we net about eighty thousand, but the rest of it just comes from you know outside sources. So um, it's 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 exciting that things have gone from you know back in two thousand seven to a very small little organization to a fairly you know we're growing fairly fairly rapidly. So it's it's great. I mean, we still got a lot of work to do, and there's people with PTS and people with TBI and it's, you know, the numbers are astronomical. When you talk about 2 million people with, with PTS that have, that have been, um, that have served, uh, we've got a lot of work to do, so mm. we've only when helped When you say PTS, what months. is, what's PTS? Well, PTS is post-traumatic stress, you know, wow, disorder. Okay. Yeah, right. it's now, I mean, there's PTSD, but post-traumatic stress, anyone that's served in, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in combat. It could be any traumatic event, you know, a car accident sure. where someone gets killed or um, right. getting held up at gunpoint or whatever. I mean, the, that kind of stuff, there's um, there's a ton of that in, in the military. And, and so this, sure. this game of golf is, is great for that because it gets people in, a, in an atmosphere and an environment where they can talk about it with their peers. Um, people like myself don't really understand I mean, I've had anxiety and then depression, but nothing like what they're experiencing. And so it, having lunch, you know, and a two-hour golf clinic has really helped these guys um, come out of their shell and talk about the issues that face, they face, sleeping issues, you know, maybe closed-in places or open spaces, you know, closed doors. They have to face the door when, they, when they're when they in a restaurant, stuff like that. I mean, sure. Um, and so beyond just the physical injuries, there's just those invisible wounds people don't see. So there's yeah, anger absolutely. management issues, you know, people on the front lines learning to fight. You know, that, that carries over in their personal life sometimes with anger. And So anyway.
1: Yeah. So like I mentioned in, in the intro, Jim, 2010 you were the PGA Patriot Award winner for your commitment to our shoulders. Talk about that award and what it meant to you. Well,
2: it, you know, I mean the award was huge. Dan Rooney um was a uh did three tours in, in um, Iraq and Afghanistan and he uh started this Patriot Award for the PGA and um Is that right? Yeah. And he um he, you know, one of the things that he did to start is he provides scholarships for the fallen and wounded, um the men and women of, of the fallen and wounded. So um to, to so he was the first Patriot Award winner, and then um, I was the third one, actually. But, you know, I mean, patriotism and through the game of golf, I mean, the, the commitment and the dedication that, to the men and women of this country is such a, you know, I, I can't think of a better group of people to help out. They're so um, respectful. I mean, they're, 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 they're disciplined in their discipline and, and their conduct and the integrity, all the things that, that the game of golf stand for. Um, right. It's just a perfect fit, you know. It's a perfect fit. Right. Um, so, uh, it's, it's, it was a blessing for me. I mean, I've, I think it changed my life in so many ways. Um, um, helping other people use ga- the game um, to somehow enhance the quality of their life has is, is, is really been a, a gift. And, um, just yesterday, I mean, I get the opportunity to work with this guy as a double amputee. And, uh, you know, here's a guy who was a great athlete, and he he was trying golf. His right hand is uh, – the nerves in his right hand don't allow him to use his fingers. And, um, you know, he'd been out there practicing golf for like two or three hours on his own, never taking any lessons, and he's like couldn't hit the ball at all. He was ready to give up. He comes for a lesson, and I got him hitting in 100 yards, and you'd think he – he won the lottery or something. You know, he kept thanking me over and over wow. and over. I can't tell you how much this is helping me. You know, I I don't even play basketball because I used to play really well, and I don't even want to play. So this game has sort of been a substitute. It's giving me something to focus on. And when you hear that kind of stuff, it just makes it all worthwhile.
1: Yeah, you know? I bet it does. That's a that's a gift that you know. You give to them, they give back to you. It's 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 a wonderful thing. That's that's yeah. He's sitting there saying, "Dude, I
2: can't believe this. I've been trying to do this for the last <laughs> three months. I couldn't hit the ball five feet, and now I'm hitting it 120 yards."
3: Nah,
1: yeah, that's so. great stuff. Yeah, that's stuff yeah. you take with you. You know, it makes you heart yeah. happy. Yeah, exactly. So, Jim, you know, real quick before we let you go, I've got our next guest, Steve Mona, hanging with us on the line. We're gonna to get to Steve in just sure. a second, but you've got. You know, you played in four U.S. Opens. Um, taking a look at what you're seeing so far this weekend, is anyone going to be able to catch Martin Keimer?
2: Well, like I, like I, you know, I played at four Opens, never made the cut. Played in the PGA, and I got to play with Martin Keimer. And at the time, if he'd have just made the cut at the PGA Championship, he would have been on the Ryder Cup team. And and he double bogeyed the 16th all I was playing with him. Of course, I double bogeyed it too to miss the cut by a couple shots, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, uh, you see a guy who's really gone through the process of maturation. I mean, he's he's been there enough now. He's experienced the pressure. But there's two things in his career that are going to serve him well this weekend. One, making that putt in the Ryder Cup. That was huge. So his mm-hmm. putter is going to be an asset under pressure. Um, and I can't say that about anybody up on there on the leaderboard right now. Um, I think he's a better putter under pressure than any of the people up there. But... You know his ball striking is is good, but I think you know you're gonna see some wild shots out of him so I think today he'll shoot probably par or one over um and I think somebody's gonna shoot a sixty six or seven that's up there in the top five or six players and like i you know my my dark horse pick would be a guy like from from us like a like a brand snedeker or, or or you know maybe even um Hunter Mahan, but I don't know if he's he's high enough up there to, to make a run, but somebody's going to get hot um, and, and make a run at Chimer. I don't think he's going to run away with it today at all.
1: All right. Well, yeah. Jim, for our listeners, um, how can they follow you and stay in touch with you, whether it's online or on social media?
2: Yeah, so number one, Golf Doc, is my Twitter handle, um, and then – JimSgolf.com or smga.org those are uh, uh smga you can donate online uh on our website and you if you're a wounded warrior we have something called the american golfer program if you want to play the game of golf and you served in combat and you want to learn from a pga professional please give stephanie lundy or dan flieger at our office a call and we have this american golfer program we serve people nationwide um Give them the opportunity to use golf. Give them if they've served in combat and they've been injured. You're going to get a free set of clubs and free lessons for life. So
1: wow, that's fantastic, right there. Again, what's the what's the uh, what's the website? SMG.
2: SMGA Salute Military Golf Association So just SMGA.org.
1: Got it. All right. Well, Jim, thank right, you so friend. much for taking thank time for out of your morning. Me. It's great. Yeah, we'd love to have you come back sometime. We'd love to stay in touch and keep the relationship going. You're fantastic.
2: Would love to. All Thanks right, so much. I'll, thank you all. Have and a and great
1: morning there. All right. Thank you, Jim. And have a you know have a great day. Enjoy the U.S. Open and all the best to you and your family.
2: Thank you. Take care. Good night. Good day.
1: All right, Jim Estes. That's fantastic stuff right there. Smga.org. Please, men and women that are part of the the military. What a great program. Please get involved and uh, and check it out. We're going to get to uh, our next our next guest, uh, Steve Mona, right after this quick uh, station identification.
0: This is Joe Longinusa from Thursday Night Tailgate, and you're listening to On the Tee with Chris Mascaro on the Armed Forces Radio Network.
1: Now joining me is Steve Mona. Steve is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, an organization that manages the World Golf Hall of Fame, the first tee in golf 2020. Uh, he was the CEO of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America for 14 years, executive director of the Georgia State Golf Association here in Atlanta for over a decade. He joined us last month over on the football side on Thursday night tailgate, and I'm very excited to have him back with me uh, again this morning on Next on the Tee. Steve, how have you been?
3: I've been great, Chris. How about you?
1: Oh, fantastic, thank you. enjoying the, the U.S. Open, and uh, things, have, uh, things have been going really well, thank you. The um, – the last time we spoke, you were, uh, you were actually about to go up and address Congress along with Jack Nicklaus and several others uh, back on World Golf Day regarding the impact of the golf industry on, you know, on our economy. One of the things many people may not know is the golf industry generates uh, over $4 billion a year for charities, which is more than Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, NFL and, you know, hockey, all of those combined golf dwarfs. Uh, talk about uh, that and how the, the meeting went uh, with Congress.
3: Well, we had our seventh annual National Golf Day in Washington, D.C. on May 21, and it was, in a word, fantastic. We were able to meet with over 100 members of Congress. We had Jack Nicklaus with us, as you mentioned, and Jack always draws the crowd, as you might imagine. But beyond that, he's such a great ambassador for the game. And so we were delighted to have Jack with us, and we were able, actually, to move some legislation along that was of importance to us. So. All in all, a very good day for golf on May twenty one in Washington.
1: So, as, as you know, kind of the, you know, the next step, if you will, Steve. What what came out of those conversations? What are what are some things that you know we may see as you know whether it's golf enthusiasts, golf fans, or whatnot? What what can we expect to see or read about uh, based on the things that you guys talked about?
3: Well, I'll give you two examples.
1: One, um, without getting too
3: technical, we were able to change the trajectory of legislation with respect to conservation easement tax incentives. And just to make this simple, uh, golf courses have been eligible since 2006 for tax incentives if they donate land for use as a conservation easement. And on both the Senate and the House side, uh, there was consideration to remove golf courses among the eligible land uses. And so really? we were able to convince, yes, and we were able to convince uh, both members of the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee that a golf course should be viewed the same as any other land use, a vineyard, a right. forest, what have you. And so they uh, listened to what we said, and now golf courses have retained their ability to make those uh, donations of land and receive a tax incentive as a result of that. So that was very important to us. And then the the second piece was more uh, educational, if you will. We uh, and you alluded to this earlier, but we have spent a significant amount of time communicating with members of Congress about the economic and charitable impact of golf on our economy. When you consider almost seventy billion dollars in economic impact, almost two million jobs, we're larger than the spectator sports and the performing arts industries combined. So our message is that golf contributes in a meaningful way to the economy. It certainly contributes in a significant way to charities in the United States, as you mentioned, almost $4 billion a year. And so those messages really resonated uh, this year, and including uh, this year for the first time a visit to the White House. So we spent – about an hour or so in the west wing of the white house meeting with the presidents uh some of his I key economic advisors so that yeah. was uh new territory for us so we continue to spread the message and uh it's significant
1: yeah well you know, to that point steve what what's it like going over to the west wing of the white house what's that what's that experience uh like for you well
3: i'll tell you i've been blessed in my career to have had the chance to do a lot of pretty interesting and uh neat things, but that would have to rank uh, right up there. We, uh, First of all, just, just the security to get in there is not easy, but uh, we all made it through and then <laughs> uh, we <laughs> escorted, escorted to the uh, the waiting area, which is very interesting because the area in which you wait for your meeting is the, the same uh, waiting area where people wait for meetings uh, in the Oval Office. So uh, that was wow. interesting. And then the other thing that was interesting about it, as it turned out uh, – the Seattle Seahawks were there that day. Oh, uh, is that right? Yeah, he does photo ops, as you know, with a right. lot of teams that win various championships. So they just happened to be there that day. So it made for an interesting uh, hour or so that we were in the West Wing.
1: No doubt. Get an opportunity to talk to Russell Wilson or Pete Carroll, any of the Seahawks?
3: We didn't bump into any of them. Uh, other, uh, Their owner uh, was around. But uh, other than that, we didn't see any of the players at the time we were oh, there.
1: okay. All right. So – um, you know speaking of economic impact and in and, and, and what it has on um, you know different organizations or on the on the country as a whole, I have to imagine that having the you know the men 's and women 's u s open in back to back weeks has to bring a huge amount of money to the local economy around Pinehurst and in the state of North Carolina over the entire month because you got you know the weeks leading up to it and then you know, I'm sure some days after both of these events. So people are pouring in money to those areas. Could we see the joining of these U.S. Opens continue going forward because of that in- economic impact and what it can do for cities around the country?
3: Well, I think the uh, the decision whether to do back-to-back will be predicated more on the – golf facility itself and whether it can handle that kind of traffic and to apropos to your point uh, what's going to occur and already is occurring obviously in North Carolina over those two weeks will be close to $170 million of economic impact Wow! and there'll be about uh, 400,000 spectators that'll uh, converge right. on Pinehurst number two over that two-week period of time and just to give you some context Last year, now this is just one week, keep in mind, obviously, but last year the U.S. Open was at Marion in suburban Philadelphia, and that generated about $100 million in economic impact. Then the year before, it was at the Olympic Club in San Francisco and generated about $140 million. So this is obviously doing more than that. Now, granted, it's two weeks, but Pinehurst number two and the whole Pinehurst complex really lends itself to something like this it's such a vast complex that can handle large groups of people and it's uh, well suited for this i i personally would love to see the usga do this again i think it's going to be great for golf it's going to bring a lot of attention to the women's game which is super but it's really going to be driven more can the um, facility itself handle two straight weeks of u.s open right. essential
1: right yeah so i mean to to your point steve you know, if, if we get to you know a week from Sunday or a week from Monday, probably more more likely. And and the superintendents and the USGA, you know, walk around and the golf course looks, you know, hey, you know, we did pretty well. The LPGA US Open, you know, for the ladies, you know, came off pretty well. If if all goes, I guess, according to plan, do you think there's a real likelihood that this could be a, a, a you know a thing going forward?
3: Well, let me put it this way: if it um, if it goes well from the quality of the competition standpoint, and I see no reason that that won't happen. And if it goes well from a commercial standpoint, and I see no reason why that won't happen. And then the third piece is if it goes well from a spectator and fan interest standpoint, i.e. TV ratings, then I think there's a real chance that we'll see this again. I really do. So uh, this was always set up as an experiment. It's never been done before, as you know. Right. But um, I'm pretty sure that the USGA, if all three of those uh, elements passed the test, so to speak, I wouldn't at all be surprised to see this happen again.
1: So you mentioned TV ratings, right? And that, obviously that's what drives so many things. I you know all sports is really around you know TV contracts and TV ratings. And we know you know it's sort of in a tigerless environment right now. You know the Masters you know ratings were down. PGA Championship player, you know, the, the Players' Championship, I should say, players were down. Do we really need to, you know, do we need to um, compare, you know, year after year? Do we really need to start taking a look at some things and go, look, that, you know, Tiger Mania was a phenomenon. And when Tiger's not in it, of course the ratings are going down because he brought in more than just the golf fan. He brought in, you know, sort of casual fans. To the game, do we really need to look back at year to year? Is that a fair comparison? Because he isn't playing, or isn't you know going to be in this thing this year? Or do we need to go back to you know whether that's in the '90s or, or some prior period to really look at a more apples to apples comparison to decide if this thing was successful or not?
3: Well, yeah, very good question. You raised several points. Um, let me make several comments. The first of which is with respect to ratings, the PGA Tour ratings do well with or without Tiger. So the way that we view it is you're building off a solid base to begin with, and on a cumulative basis, if you add up all of the people who watch televised golf over the course of a year, but by the time the year is out, the number, the cumulative number is close, uh, Tiger or no Tiger. That's cumulative that over right? the course of the year. Yeah, that's cumulative over the course of the year. That's correct. Um, now, what happens, though, as you pointed out, is individual events, the ratings can fluctuate wildly. And what happens, and we should just be straight about it, is that when Tiger plays an event, number one, and number two, if he's in contention, then that's probably going to mean about a 30% boost to the ratings. Right. So, that and for the reason that you outlined, he is a transcendent athlete. They don't come along very often. He brings people... Right to our game who are really not golf fans, per se. They're very casual. They're sports fans. They love to see a a -a once-in-a-lifetime athlete compete. So so we should all be very, very respectful of what Tiger's done for our game because uh, people, athletes like him, come along once-in-a-lifetime, really. Now, having said that, uh, the tour is doing a good job of, highlighting other athletes that are coming on board now and playing very well. You have the Jordan Spies, Rory McIlroy's young people who, um, okay. now will they be Tiger? I don't know, but they're certainly going to be athletes that are going to capture the imagination of the average golf fan. So uh, the way we look at it is we've got a very stable base. We've got a, a very loyal core group of fans who watch the sport uh, week in and week out and um, it's our job to, to continue to build on that and the way you do it is by humanizing the athletes and giving people a, a reason to follow them so and the other piece I would say is Tiger's coming back I mean I know he's been out and he he may be out for probably several more weeks I mean I don't know when he's going to come back but um, okay. but he'll be back and he's going <laughs> to don't be surprised if he comes back and uh, he gets a second win, so to speak, and competes at a very high level again. Uh, who knows where he's going to end up vis-a-vis Jack's record. Who knows where he's going to end up right. vis-a-vis Sam Snead's record. But um, he's not done by any means. He's, uh, if you look at it, you look at Phil Mickelson, look at Ernie Both they both win the Open Championship in consecutive years at age 40-plus. There's no reason right. why Tiger can't do that. So he's by no means finished.
1: No, no, I don't think you know I don't think anybody thinks he's done. I think yeah, you're right. I think the debate is more, you know, can he reach Jack's record? And you know, that's always been the debate since, you know, very early on in his career. But no, I don't think anyone thinks, you know, that he's not going to be a, you know, a force, out, you know, when he comes back force out on the tour. Um, Steve, you know, kind of getting back a little bit to, to Pinehurst. Do you, do you think golf courses around the world are going to look at what, Pine, what the redesign of Pinehurst, what they've done, and go to more centerline watering and sort of let the rough be, you know, more what they're calling, I guess, natural vegetation and sort of waste areas with sand to, to save money and to save, you know, water usage, be more, you know, environmentally conscious, and and, uh, and ultimately what, what can happen is make the game more affordable for people to play.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, I think you're going to see two things. One, because of the reality of water and how scarce of a resource it is in so many parts of the country, Uh, golf courses just aren't going to have the ability to irrigate as they did, say, let's say 20, 30 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. And I think that's going to continue to become more of an acute issue. So golf courses will have to, in certain parts of the country, uh, irrigate less, area, acreage, and um, be very judicious where they put a very finite resource. So that's number one. Number two, from an economic standpoint, as you suggest, um, even if water is fairly abundant, which it is in certain parts of the country, I think you're going to see more and more of an emphasis on having areas that are very much in play, i.e. in the center of the uh, golf course, so to speak. Uh, well maintained and um, intensely uh, managed and and irrigated, but then as you get into the shall I say the less uh, traveled parts of the golf course, i.e. the roughs and <laughs> and into for some people anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then off off to the sides of there uh, you'll see less of that. And so so I think it's going to be two things. I think the the just the reality of the the. Availability of water is going to drive it, and then I think, two economics are going to drive it. And I really commend the USGA. We're going to see two years in a row of U.S. Opens that are going to look like Pinehurst does. Chambers Bay next year, depending upon the, just the, what's going on in the natural weather pattern, will have something to do with it. But that will look a little, uh, maybe not much like Pinehurst. It's a different terrain, but it's going to look more like that. So the USGA and the U.S. Open in particular uh, creates a a kind of a model, if you will, in some respects, of what a golf course can look like. And I think this is good. I think the the days of the high rough, irrigated wall-to-wall, tremendously high maintenance, um, those are behind us. And I think that's actually good for the game.
1: No, is that right? So you think that's all done? Well, let me put it this way.
3: Um, There will be facilities that have the budgets and have the resources to maintain golf courses sort of in that wall-to-wall parkland green kind of style yeah and and more power to them but i think increasingly well sure a place like that um you know that's just the way that that club's set up and uh and that's a that's a whole different look and that 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 actually creates a lot of interest in the game too, as you know. I mean, typically the right. Masters is the highest rated uh, televised golf event of the year, so that's 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 good for the game in a whole different way. But my point right. is, I'm talking now most, I'm talking just courses that all of us play day in and day out. Right. I think for those two reasons, the scarcity of water and the economics of maintaining golf courses as parkland, wall-to-wall, I think you're going to see golf move away to a, a browner look, to a less intensely uh, maintained and irrigated look outside of the kind of the center lines of the fairways and i think that'll be good for the game in the
1: main right no i agree i mean i I, you know i've loved watching uh you know what i've seen so far of pinehurst um, on tv i mean i think that i think it looks great i think they've done a great job you know you know congratulations to coors and crenshaw for for what they've done i know it's sort of going back to you know the original course design but um I think you know it's. I think it looks fantastic, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more and playing more golf courses that actually look look like that. I think that's a wonderful thing for our environment, and hopefully, like I say, hopefully it, da- it trickles down to make golf more affordable for people to play around the country and gets more people involved. Um, one more thing before we let you go, Steve, and you, you guys do such an outstanding job. With the first tee and getting uh, introducing the game to to kids, um, what what things have you got going on there? What things can uh, our listeners and uh, you know to parents and children uh, look forward to uh, from the first tee?
3: Well, uh, I would make a few comments first. The uh, the first tee is now available, really in four different delivery channels, if you will. And let me tell you what they are. And I think okay. it's important for your listeners to understand this because. The traditional 1st T chapter, which has been a physical location in a town, um, continues. And we have uh, close to, in the neighborhood of about 180 1st tea chapters that are physical chapters located mm-hmm. all around the country. I mean, that's really the bedrock of the 1st T. But there's three other delivery vehicles now. There's the, what's called the National Schools Program, where the 1st T is now being Offered at about 6,600 elementary schools around right? the country. That's correct. Wow. As part of the PE curriculum for elementary age students, so we have young elementary age boys and girls now being introduced to golf and the first through uh, their PE classes uh, at these elementary schools. And our goal is to increase that to 10,000 elementary schools by uh, 2017. So that's important. Now, the next Thanks. delivery me- uh, mechanism is through, and this is very appropriate for your listeners, uh, is through the military. The first T is on virtually all military bases in the United States and most military bases around the world, so that we can offer the first T to the children of the men and women who are serving Thanks. our country, and that's critically that's important. Yes. And in the fourth, the fourth area, and this is the newest, uh, we made a decision that we need to go to where the kids are. And so we need to figure out where the kids congregate and can we bring the first T to them? And the answer is yes. And so we're partnering up now with um, YMCAs and uh, boys and girls clubs to bring the first T to those facilities in the form of after-school programs uh, for uh, young young children, boys and girls. So if you think about it now, you can – you can have First Tee really part of your life almost all day because if you if you happen to be at an elementary school, that offers it. You can get it during the school day, number one. Number two, you can go to an after-school program, a Boys and Girls Club, a YMCA, et cetera, and you can be offered it. And number three, if you happen to have a local chapter in your area, then you can go there on the weekends and during the summer. So we're trying to make the First Tee available and accessible to all. And on that note, our goal is uh, to reach 10 million young people Uh, between 2012 and 2017, and we're well on our way to doing that. The other piece I would mention with respect to the First Tee is, as we've discussed before, it's much more than simply a junior golf program. Sure, it it teaches you golf skills, but more importantly, we think it teaches you life skills. And that uh, manifests itself through the nine core values that we teach, and then new, relatively new to the first T, is what's called the nine healthy habits. Annika Sornstam is the honorary chair of that. But now kids learn how to make good choices around their diet, exercise, et cetera. And so we're trying to not only teach them life skills, but we're also trying to teach them uh, wellness habits that will serve them well throughout their life. Right.
1: That's fantastic stuff, Steve, all the way around for where, you know how you've expanded it, where your goals are at in the, in the you know the ancillary piece around that. That's fantastic stuff. Congratulations to you and everyone that's put that stuff together.
3: Well, thank you, Chris. It's a good group of people. Uh, uh, the PGA Tour has been a great partner and has helped uh, drive so much success of the First Tee. It's, uh, it's a well-run organization. Joe Barrow is the chief executive, and he does a great job along with the staff, and There's literally thousands of volunteers around the country that really make this happen, and uh, that's really the strength of the First Tee.
1: Right. Well, Steve, before we let you run, how can people follow you and the organizations, you know, that you're working with, whether it's, you know, online or over social media? How can they get involved? Well,
3: uh, what I would suggest is a couple things. One, um, there's a website uh, called uh, wearegolf.org, And that is um, probably the best place to go if you're interested in anything that we just discussed, um, with the exception of another site, which is um, uh, golf2020.org. And that will bring you to uh, the other programs that we discussed that are more around uh, player development. So... WeareGolf.org, golf2020.org, um, and that will take you in every direction that you need to go. So those would be the two places I would uh, point your listeners.
1: Okay. All right, well, Steve, thank you so much for coming—you know, coming here on next on the tee. We enjoyed you so much on Thursday night tailgate. We we needed to get you on the golf side because of all the wonderful things that you told us there, and we wanted to make sure this audience was aware of it as well. We hope you'll keep coming back from time to time, updating us on the things that you know that you guys are doing, the organizations you're working with are doing, and just overall what's going on around the game of golf because uh, you're fantastic.
3: Well, thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you. I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to speak to such an important uh, listening audience is what you represent and it's a pleasure and an honor really to um... to be heard by uh... so many people that mean so much to our country so thank you for having me
1: absolutely thank you steve we uh, look forward to catching up with you again hopefully in the not too distant future in the meantime all the best to you and your family
3: thank you and to you too chris
1: all right thanks steve have a good day you too all right everybody it's time to put a bow on this one. What a great thing Steve was talking about there! Holy cow! The WeAreGolf.org and the Golf2020.org sites. Please take a look at those first tee opportunity for uh, all the men and women you know listening here on the. Uh, Armed Forces Radio Network, and it be found on the military bases you know around the world. Wonderful opportunity you know for you and your children to get involved and play the game of golf. Get introduced if you haven't been already. I love the things that they are working on, and boy, looking forward to seeing you know, more golf courses actually go to the centerline watering and seeing some of the natural vegetation that's going to take over uh, in the roughs. So I hope, hopefully, like Steve says, that trickles down and makes the game affordable for more and more people. Uh, I think that's an exciting development as well. Like I say, time to put a bow on this one. Thanks also to to Jim Estes for being an outstanding guest as well and to our announcer, Joe Lagianusa, who always does such an outstanding job kicking off the show every week. And I thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you the very most. Please also check out our sister show, like you've heard us mention throughout the course of this one, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob, uh, Bob Lazeri, and our announcer, Joe Lagianusa, over there as well. You can hear us right here on the Armed Forces Radio Network, as well as Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and radio sites across the Internet. That show airs every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. We bring you five current or former uh, NFL players or coaches, uh, people from the media. We are official uh, uh, partners with the NFL Alumni Association, as well as being the official radio show of of, uh, Mike Ditka's Gridiron Greats organization. So you can hear a lot of great NFL talk over there every week out of the year. So football season never ends on Thursday night, tailgate. Uh, Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like, so Next on the T and uh, Thursday Night Tailgate. You can interact with the show, give us some questions, thoughts, all that sort of stuff. We appreciate that. Please also check us out online. You can find this show, nextonthetea.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archived episodes and keep up to date with uh, some of our future guests on either side as well. And until next week, my friends, hit them straight.
0: the choice of a crispy chicken blt to wendy's four for four is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing i got me a and i sound like a robot but do you like the sound of this wendy's four for four now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken blt from detroit to macon a keep it crisp like bacon both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets fries and a coke for just four bucks oh yeah at participating wendy's for a limited time meal includes small fries and a drink not valid in alaska and hawaii